welcome to the new podcast series, Rose Library Presents, Behind the Archives. I'm your host, Lolita Rowe, the community outreach archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library in Atlanta, Georgia. The Rose Library promotes access and learning, equity and justice by documenting, preserving, and making accessible distinctive and diverse collections and records, fostering original research and critical engagement with the past by engaging diverse communities through innovative outreach, programming, and exhibitions. In this first season of Behind the Archives, we will explore from many perspectives the question, what is an archive? Journey with me to learn from the insights of our guests and explore what we do at Rose Library and who we are as an organization and as a profession. For this inaugural episode, I interviewed Megan O'Reardon from the Rose Library and Rosemary Davis from the Bonnicky Library at Yale University about their jobs as accessioning archivists. This conversation took place on February 26th of this year, just before the pandemic. Hello, everyone. Megan and uh, Rosemary, could you begin by telling us what it is that you do? Sure. So as Lolita said, I am the accessioning archivist for the Rose Library. And I've been at the Rose for about four years with a variety of titles, but my title always had the word accessioning in it. (laughs) And the short version is, is that I'm responsible for stewarding all of our uh, new collection material from the time when a curator selects it to be added to our collections to the time when it's available in the reading room, which includes shipping, uh, paying invoices, managing paperwork, and then the actual arranging and describing uh, to create a finding aid to put online so researchers can find it and use it. So it's everything from A to Z. And uh, I'm a visitor, uh, so I'm the accessioning archivist at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale. And I've been in this position... Uh, for about three and a half years now. Uh, I'm actually part of a larger team. There are currently seven people who are doing accessioning work kind of solely at the Beinecke, which is a pretty big organization. So um, like Megan, I'm responsible for kind of soup to nuts. Um, A lot of the things that happen after the decision uh, to acquire something is made. So, um, you know, doing donor relations to kind of help facilitate getting materials to the library, doing actual packing of collections, materials, doing that first finding aid, rehousing, catalog record, um, kind of all the foundational descriptive and like stabilization work that needs to happen in order to keep collections safe, make them visible in the library. What makes accessioning part of the bigger role that is important to collections? Like why is accessioning important? There's a traditional definition of what it means to accession that Rosemary and I aren't too crazy about, but it answers that question pretty well. Um, it's succinct, but it's not complete yes. in, in, in our, <laughs> to our way of thinking. Yeah, so the traditional definition is that accessioning is the uh, physical, legal, and intellectual transfer of custody of collection material. Um, so basically um, getting it to the repository and making sure it's stabilized 
just in terms of, you know, their folders aren't slumped over, boxes are in good condition, et cetera. The intellectual is the finding aid work that we mentioned and making sure we have a handle on what is in the um, collection and represent that well. And then the legal is like the actual contract of like this now belongs to the library. And so if you think about those things, physically getting it here, making it legal, and then making it available, nothing else can happen until accessioning happens. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very tidy kind of traditional definition. I think Megan and I kind of like to think about the labor that we as accessioning archivists put into doing that work um, as kind of an important dimension of it. So we like to include um, kind of like the emotional aspects of that work in terms of interacting with the donors, Mm -hmm. um, of maintaining those different relationships with curators, but also other aspects of tech services, with vendors, with legal, uh, oftentimes with space management. It's the first time that archivists kind of have their hands on the materials. And so it, it, you know, it lays the groundwork for future descriptive work, um, for making sure that people know that it exists, for making sure that the library has a clear understanding of what they own, where it is, and what it is. Um, And it kind of it's the springboard for everything else that happens after it. So we think it's a very foundational type of thing. Right. You know, um, we get questions now and then at the Rose about just yesterday, actually, our reference coordinator had a question about if we knew that we were going to get any additions to a collection where the last time we seem to have received a name material was 2010. And there wasn't a super robust collection file. To um, The finding aid said we had gotten the original acquisition in 2010 with subsequent additions, but it didn't say when those subsequent additions occurred because that, that's just the way we used to write the note. We don't write the note like that anymore. I mean, the answer to the question, of course, is like this donor is still alive. So, I mean, she could call me up tomorrow. So there's not there was never going to be a good answer to the question. But um, we could have at least said, well, you know, we last got additions in 2014. And so could be coming up soon again or something. You know, we could have given maybe a little bit better answer. And so those are the kinds of questions that really robust accessioning processes um, can help answer. So as uh, you were saying traditional, so what are you doing that's non-traditional with accessioning? Well, that I think is kind of hard to answer. Um, The project we're working on, which I know we'll get to, um, is really exploring what everyone is doing because everyone's doing things differently. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is key to what, Rosemary and I do, and um, and certainly many other repositories, is the making it available part. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, accessioning would sort of stop at making the accession record, which gives all of the information about the collection, and that would be the only piece of the intellectual part of the definition. Mm-hmm. But at the Rose and at the Beinecke, um, we take that a step forward and actually open up those collections, um, publish a finding aid online, make a catalog record, um, 
so that researchers can access it. Um, and so this means that it might have what we call a minimal amount of arrangement and description. It might just be a list of boxes. The boxes might not be like totally beautiful, perfectly organized. They might not be, um, all the material might not be in archival folders, might be in original folders. So um, opening up these sort of minimally arranged and described collections um, as part of what pushes um, accessioning further away from the traditional method. So could you walk me through like what a typical day would be if you're accessioning? Is there such a thing as a typical day? I would say there definitely isn't. And I think it's just because there are so many different elements that go into our work. I mean, you know, there's one word accessioning, but it's actually encompasses so many different types of work, physical stuff of moving things from one place to the other, of, you know, traveling to pack boxes, space management, stacks management, but also, you know, interacting with multiple different entities within the library. Um, you kind of always have multiple projects going on at the same time, and it's not a linear path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to be really responsive on any one day. I'm usually working on description for two for two or three different collections, you know, um, or one larger collection working on the finding aid and the catalog record for that. But I'm also corresponding with people about a shipment that's coming in. I'm monitoring um, the acquisition decisions that are being made to know what's coming down the turnpike so we can make sure that we have space to put what's coming in. And so it's kind of this moving from thing to thing, it's kind of, you know, you're kind of like a firefly. You have to just like go from place to place to place. I would agree with that. Um, I started a collection on when I was working um, on Saturday. And so like on Monday, I needed to finish rehousing it. And I wanted to finish writing a draft of the finding aid. Um, It's a new collection, which means I have to write a brand new finding aid, which goes through a review process. Mm Um, At the same time, we had received a collection that we packed in San Francisco at the end of January, and I wanted to finish that finding aid also so I could get both off to my colleagues for a review, which, hooray, I managed to do. Um, At the same time, uh, we're packing a collection next week, so I was uh, coordinating with our local movers, coordinating with the curator, uh, recruiting people to come with me. It's a local one, so just trying to get some time out of people's days next week to come with me to help with this. I wouldn't say there's necessarily a typical day unless a typical day is doing all of these things at once all the time. (laughs) You mentioned the San Francisco trip. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that process and what occurred during that trip? Sure, absolutely. Um, That's a really good example. I wish I could say the name of the collection. I was hoping um, the Finding Aid would be published by now, but it's not quite there yet. This has gone the most well out of this process, so that's why it's a a good example. (laughs) Um, This was a really large collection. Um, We estimated about 150 linear feet, which for the listeners is about 150 standard banker's box size boxes. We sent 200. We always overestimate (laughs) um, just in case. Um, So we did send uh, 200 boxes to the donor site. So that's one thing that had to be done. Uh, I also printed all the labels, got all the barcodes and uh, barcode covers, which are just stickers that go over them. (laughs) I got all the supplies gathered, took my tool bag. um, I coordinated with the curator and another archivist to travel to go pack. We left on a Monday. 
went to the donor's home to evaluate the collection and come up with a plan. And then we packed all day, Tuesday, Wednesday, and part of Thursday, which consisted of most of the stuff was in a tiny room. And so the other archivist was in that room um, trying to clear out some stuff. And so I was doing the other work of making sure we labeled all the boxes and did the container list. And then the curator was evaluating the book part of the collection. By the end of it, it was 201 boxes. And we had um, a couple of additional, like, weird odd size shape things that we had to sort of um, construct boxes for them to fit in. The movers came Friday morning. Um, It was a moving company I'd never used before since it was in California. Um, But it was recommended by a colleague at UCLA, and they were fantastic. So they arrived, assessed the area, and came up with a plan for um, palletizing all of these boxes. They palletized everything in about three hours, and, um, you know, we flew home. They took the shipment back um, with them to L.A. um, to prepare for FedEx freight shipping. So when I got back Monday morning, I coordinated with FedEx Freight to pick that up on the following Wednesday. Um, And about a week later, five pallets arrived at the Library Service Center, which is our off-site storage facility. I went over there actually last Thursday to take a look. Um, In total, only about 10 boxes were damaged enough that I had to replace them, which might sound like a lot, but it's actually the lowest number that I've ever had from (laughs) one of these. And because we had um, labeled and barcoded and made the container list on site um, after I assessed the um, physical boxes to make sure they were still in good condition after having made the trip across country, they could go right into the LSC. I had already done what I needed to do with the barcodes. So um, now we're just wrapping up the finding aid. And even though we packed 201 boxes at the end of January, the collection should be available within the next week or two. So that is something that is one of the things that accessioning archivists are doing in this field. So tell me about the the field, like what's going on in the the state of accessioning right now? Um, One thing is that's happening that is really interesting is a lot more of us are being hired. Yeah, there have been a lot of job postings that actually have the word accessioning in them recently. I mean, far more than I ever noticed before I had this job. Um, Yeah, one thing that Rosemary and I talk about a lot is neither of us really knew what accessioning was or had had any experience with it before we took our jobs. They don't I, they literally never mentioned it when I was in library school. No, never. And also, um, when I applied for the job I have now, the term collections manager was mm-hmm. in the title, and that is a class that I had in library school, and I knew I was super interested in collection management, so that's actually the part of the job that like drew me in. Basically, everywhere does something for accessioning. It's very rare to find a repository that doesn't do some kind of accessioning work. But it might be somebody with any number of titles. Like they might, their title might be processing archivist or manuscript archivist, which is a more traditional title. Or their title might be special collections librarian because they're a one person shop. Um, so now more and more repositories are actually hiring for positions that have the word accessioning in the title. I mean, 
uh, UCLA hired, um, Boston College hired after that. I just saw yesterday University of Oregon put up a position. Smith put up a position a few months back. So. University of Virginia. Yeah, so that's a big thing that's happening is that people are starting to recognize the value of having a person dedicated to doing this work and are seeking out people to do it. So then what would you suggest would be a great career path into accessioning? Most accessioning archivist positions are entry level. So Mm -hmm. um, folks straight out of library school who want to dip their toe into it, most of these jobs are available to them. The key would be to find out and learn about it during school, um, either as part of your job or internship or apprenticeship. Um, Like Rosemary mentioned, it wasn't in our library school curriculums, and I still have not heard of sort of like an intro to accessioning course being offered. Um, There also isn't like a lot of professional scholarship in the field that's dedicated to it. It's a small handful. There are a couple of older articles, but only now are people kind of starting to turn their attention to like kind of focusing on it in a serious way. Yeah. So if this sounds something like right up your alley, then just we're not just us. Literally every person that we have reached out to to talk about accessioning are super excited to do so. Everybody really wants to talk about it. (laughs) So I would encourage folks to reach out to people who have that word in their title and ask them about it. And that's going to be really helpful. And knowing if that's something that you're interested in doing. Um, And then also it gives you a connection when you start actually looking for those roles and those positions. Yeah, and they're actually, I think that if you look at the job descriptions for for most accessioning archivist roles, it's such a wonderful collection of experiences and skills that you get to develop while you're doing this work because you get to do, I mean, you basically get to dip your toe into so many different aspects of of special collections work, Um, you know, collaborating with so many different people and like, you know, you really get to build your chops uh, in so many different ways. And so a lot of people I know who have gone on to be good managers um, have done accessioning work beforehand because they have a better awareness of what it takes in order to do those individual elements Mm -hmm. and be in those types of relationships. Um, And it's, it's a helpful, it's a helpful thing. I had special collections background, but I had been in a public library for a year and a half before I came here. And so I think I was actually hired based on more kind of customer service soft skills of being able to work with a wide variety of people and um, work well with customers because although call them donors, call them sellers, call them vendors, call them whoever, they're customers. Um, (laughs) And um, so, yeah, I think a lot of skills that you might develop in other uh, industries Mm -hmm. are applicable to accessioning and accessioning will give you skills that are applicable to a lot of other places. Yeah, that's true. So you mentioned a project. What project are you two working on? Rosemary and I began a what we lovingly call the Accessioning Research Project. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness, a year-ish ago yeah, was when so. the idea kind of formed and we started mm-hmm. moving forward on it. Um, it is basically a state of the question that you asked. It's the state of the field of accessioning. What are folks doing at their different repositories? How are they doing it? How are they resourced? 
how does it make them feel to do that work? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Our project is framed through the lens of of physical, emotional, and intellectual labor rather than custody. (laughs) Um, And who do you have to talk to to get things done? How does selection affect your day-to-day work, et cetera? So we just want to know what's happening and we're going to we're gathering the majority of our data from actually visiting repositories in person doing conducting site visits we have visited eight nine repositories so far and we've got 20 plus on the docket in total so far um and just interviews, touring the space. It was really important to us to be able to see the physical space where people work because of how that impacts uh, what can be done. Um, And then we also have a survey out. The survey is technically closed, but if anyone listening wants to take it, we will send you the link. (laughs) Um, We gathered... 117 mm-hmm. completed responses. To, uh, it's an exceptionally long survey. It's it is. very detailed. <laughs> we ask a lot of questions and there's a lot of like space for people to specifically describe their experiences. So the fact that we got over 100 people who really put in the effort, it means a lot. Yeah. And um, we're just trying to gather data from wherever we can um, with the hopes of publishing eventually something that says to the world, this was what's happening. And, you know, the goal is to take a look at what's happening and see what's working and see what doesn't and what context that's working in and um, hopefully be able to start to say, um, maybe this is how we should be doing things. Mm. Yeah, there aren't really established professional guidelines for how accessioning work can create and kind of a byproduct of that not being uh, more officially recognized by the organizations that we belong to um, also means that there isn't really a formal community for people doing this work. So Megan and I presented on a panel together at the Society of American Archivists in, was it 2018? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And everybody on the panel was talking about accessioning and we were just like, oh my gosh, wow. Other people are doing this. I like felt very seen. I was just Mm -hmm. like, I, I am so happy to know. And like, that was kind of what struck up our relationship, you know, um, just from the start was being like, oh, you do it like this. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Yes. I've had to deal with this. And so it was kind of this, you know, um, combination commiseration, but also like just the relief of knowing that we weren't so isolated. Mm -hmm. And so I think the project is really trying to seek out more opportunities to hear from people and like really kind of center the human experience of doing this work and build that community so that we can then try and move forward with figuring out how we can help each other do this work better and have some support for ourselves. Yeah. And it's already yielding um, really great results. Um, I can speak about at the Rose, you know, um, I mentioned a colleague at UCLA gave me the mover in California. Well, that was because we were there for a site visit. And Jasmine Jones, uh, I mentioned a great mover. And I said, Oh, I'm good. I have a move coming up. (laughs) Will you put me in touch with them? And so that that's great. And then also, at UC Irvine, they were using a product called Airtable to manage their workflow. And I was already familiar with this product for another reason, but seeing how it could be used in archives really inspired me, and I've implemented it for accessioning here. So 
um, we're not even halfway through quite yet of our visits, mm-hmm. and um, I'm already seeing the fruits of our labor for how it will help with um, just day-to-day accessioning at the Rose. Yeah. And so I have one or two more questions. Sure. So with accessioning, um, you've talked about the benefits of it. You've talked about what you've gone through to make sure that this project that you're doing allows people to understand and and connect. But what are some of the misconceptions of your job? I think a big one is I get emails all the time trying to sell me or donate stuff. So people see me as a person who can make decisions about what we're going to acquire, Mm -hmm. and especially when I had the words collections manager in my title, this happened even more. Now that my title is accessioning archivist, that's less (laughs) well-known. But the thing is, is I don't actually get to make those decisions. Um, I feel very privileged now that I do get to sit in on the meeting, but that's only been for the last nine months to a year. Um, Before that, I wasn't even in the meeting where those decisions happened. And so um, I think that is a big misconception that um, the people who are working most closely with the material are also the people who get to decide about what we're acquiring. And that's almost never true. I think kind of a pervasive thing, and this goes back to what you mentioned earlier about kind of what we're doing that's less traditional. I think there's I think there's often pushback about accessioning work in terms of the the processing and descriptive work that we do and the misconception that perhaps the baseline or kind of initial iteration of work that we do isn't complete in some way or isn't sufficient enough. And so I think there's kind of a misconception that it's, I don't know, I, I think this... I, I think it's just tied into kind of my my general frustration with the ways in which accessioning work has been kind of made invisible mm-hmm. or it's just not kind of like recognized as an important part of the, you know, the overall machine of special collections, mm-hmm. um, kind of its role in, in keeping it running. And so I think there's kind of a, a conception that, you know, we basically kind of lug things around and just like slap a label on the box and then like, but it's not really done. It's mm-hmm. not really completed. It's not traditionally valued, I think, in the way that some, you know, more item level descriptive work might be done. And I think there's so much value in in both approaches. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, baseline description and accessioning work, instead of being seen as kind of like a throwaway or just kind of like, you know, a shortcut, um, it's actually, you know, a way to be built upon and it's, it's making it available more quickly. And so I think there's this misconception that we're like, we hear, we hear the phrase, Oh, that collection's just accession. The word, the word just (laughs) does a lot of heavy lifting. Um, they're like, Oh, it's, it's, you know, Oh, it's just been done this. It's, just baseline and like no it's baselined it's visible it's usable and and so I think there's um yeah I think there's a misconception that what we're doing is is not uh on the same level yes instead of it just being recognized as a different level yeah I get a (laughs) lot of questions about um when I explain to folks um how we do accessioning here they say well, will collections who have gone that have gone through accessioning will they ever receive additional processing? And the thing is, is that maybe I mean mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying that that is 
impossible. Um, we're hiring a project archivist right now for a collection that has been accessioned and is open. And, you know, when that person comes, it'll get closed and it'll get more detailed processing. So it's not like that won't ever happen. But the question presupposes that it must happen. Yeah. And we feel like um, sometimes the level of description that we provided accessioning enough. is enough. And a collection never needs additional um, work on it to be available, and that's not how it is seen yet in the profession or at yeah. individual repositories. I mean, and if your choice is essentially between continuing to acquire collections at a pace where um, more traditional forms of processing can't actually keep up with it in terms of making things accessible, that's not ethical stewardship. I mean, right. would you rather have collections that are visible, that are usable, um, and that have a minimal amount of description, but with endless possibilities for building upon that description? Or do you want stuff sitting on shelves in a warehouse and nobody knows it's there and nobody's mm -hmm. using it? Um, and you're not actually, you know, serving the creator, the donor, um, or the communities that, you know, use the library's collections. And so, final question. What makes archives important? Mm -hmm. What makes the point of accessioning those archives so valuable. I think you touched on it throughout the interview, but I'd like to hear your words on it. To me, accessioning is is this really wonderful and kind of crucial bridge between the decision that a library makes to acquire something and and people getting to use it. Um, you know, we we kind of maintain those relationships with with donors and and vendors. We help make sure things get safely to the library, and you know, we make it visible in its in its very kind of like purest form after it arrives. Um, and to me, that you know, making sure that people know what we have as opposed to just acquiring to acquire, the point is is access. Mm -hmm. And accessioning, good accessioning makes that happen more quickly. It makes it happen more effectively. It makes it possible for more work to be done. And it's it just it's really foundational for me. Yeah, I ask like why are archives important? Uh it makes me very uncomfortable because I didn't um grow up as an archivist. Like <laughs> I didn't take archives courses in library school. Um and in particular here at the Rose, the subjects that we collect in are not my subjects of expertise and interest. And so sometimes I kind of feel like, I don't know why archive. No, <laughs> but, you know, the, what I think uh, a lot of what Rosemary said is true for me, too, is like I might not know why something is important, but I have a connection with the donor and the seller and the vendor. I have connections with them that make me want to do right by them. Mm -hmm. And and occasionally I develop relationships with researchers too and I want and and I care a lot about um, what you do Lolita as community outreach archivist I care a lot about what Gabrielle does as instruction archivist and so it might not be of my interest but I want to make sure that it's available to my colleagues and available to again our customers our researchers <laughs> to be able to use 
um, for whatever they're interested in. And whenever we go on these packing trips and develop uh, relationships with donors, again, whatever we're packing up might not be something I care anything about, but I have developed a relationship with them and I want to make sure that they know I'm going to take care of their stuff. Yeah. So that's what I think is important about it. The relationships. Yeah. Yeah. An update. Due to COVID-19 travel restrictions, further site visits were canceled. Once travel restrictions are lifted, additional site visits will be possible through a strategic growth grant received from the Society of American Archivists Foundation. Until then, they have also turned their attention to working on a writing project to share findings from the survey they conducted and the data collected from pre-pandemic site visits. More information about the project can be found in the notes on the series website. Behind the Archives is produced by Loli Tarot and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, Jennifer King, Director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Megan O'Riordan and Rosemary Davis for the insight into accessioning and to the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. Please join us next month when I'll be interviewing Sarah Quigley about her work as Head of Processing at Rose Library. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Community Conversations, and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us online at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on Rose Library's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Behind the Archives and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.